I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. be getting our hands dirty this week and before i show you how let's go ahead and hear from our guests i'm fernando morales and my craft is directing my name is mark tildesney and my craft is production design fernando morales is the academy award nominated director of films like city of god the constant gardener and blindness among many others He brings to his work what L.A. Times critic Kenneth Turan once called a potent and unexpected mixture of authenticity and flash. He's the kind of artist who is always exploring, always learning, always curious about and, above all, sensitive to the characters he depicts in his work. That made Morales a fascinating match for his latest film, The Two Popes, a once-in-many-lifetimes tale centered on the exchange of power at the top of the Catholic Church. It's also a story about the ongoing struggle between ideas— specifically conservatism, the belief in something which is true today and true tomorrow that isn't relativistic, and progressivism, the push for change, for growth, for breaking through the barriers that impede, well, progress. Beyond the text, however, the film was a considerable practical challenge, because the bulk of it, a sort of tete-a-tete between the exiting Pope Benedict and the current Pope Francis, takes place within the hallowed halls of the Sistine Chapel. Production designer Mark Tildesley and his team had their work cut out for them because filming at the famed sanctuary was obviously out of the question. But where does one even begin reproducing one of the greatest achievements in art history? We're going to hear about that and a lot more, so let's get into it. Let's start with the pre-production on this film, which was obviously considerable because you knew going in that you weren't going to be able to shoot in the Sistine Chapel. So that means... You've got to build it. What was the research period? What was the intensity of it like? How deep did you get? Probably very deep. And then what was the church's involvement at that time? Well, my memory of it was that the production period wasn't that long. And because we were basically, the film is split across two countries, um, and mostly you know, in Italy and Rome, and then in Argentina and Buenos Aires, um, we had sort of half the prep because we had to use different teams we weren't traveling the entire team right through the process so we split the work into two and of course in argentina we had to create all the sets but in the vatican we had to replicate which i mean my point of view makes it a bit easier because michelangelo had done his part already <laughs> so it was a matter of how to to recreate that in, in the most uh, efficient and beautiful and, and similar way right yeah this makes it quicker right yeah because you don't have to create uh less judgment the thing that the thing the challenge for us really was was uh for me as a designer uh in rome was to was to manage how on earth in the time that we had would we get ready to produce the the, the sistine chapel which is central to the to the story and is that set some challenges for us you know the, how what process would we use to recreate that and where would we do that mm-hmm and what's interesting to me is, you know, for instance, the papal conclave and all of that rich detail. And you are depicting something that no one outside those walls has seen before. And Mark, you and I spoke a number of mm-hmm. weeks back. We talked about how what was important to you and your team was to tell the truth. 
But in this case, you had to research and discover what that truth even was. The sort of Bressonian minutia of that detail. Mm. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, actually, the, just add something. That this was not scripted. In the script, it says, and they go through the, all the process. <laughs> so it was really the art department who taught me how it would work. I mean, you have, we have consultants, yeah. and then Mark told me how to do it. Yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit of a detective process. As Fernando will explain, obviously the Vatican were, were not negative ever, but they, they, they weren't very forthcoming with, with information stuff. But we did, we did eventually get some advisors. And in fact, we met an amazing historian, Enrico Bruschetti, who's written uh, The Treasures of Rome and is, a, is a, an amazing historian on the Vatican and everything that's gone on inside it. And his grandfather was the sacristan that, that actually worked inside the Sistine Chapel. So he dressed the popes. Mm. So he was a very great source of information for our team. Uh, the the set deck team led by Veronique Melray, they, they, they did a, a big investigation into that sort of across the table with the people from the Vatican to find out, you know, what, what actually happened. So all yeah. the details you see in the film with the, the sewing of the thread through yeah. things. I mean, you just think, wow, this is extraordinary, isn't it? It's medieval, but those are exactly what's happened and it hasn't changed. And the wooden balls that indicate that each mm -hmm. cardinal has voted. I'd like to say to Fernando that I think he did an amazing job with that because it, it, it's, a, it's actually in the end, it's, quite, it's, it's nice to see, but it could be a boring process. Yeah, but I don't have the credit. I remember going to, uh, for the first time to visit you know, because I was going to shoot the sequence. So going to the art with Renif, with yourself, and we would go through and, and you would explain me what what, <laughs> what would happen and, and then I, so I could shoot. It was really, yeah. it's funny because it's a script written by the art department. That's <laughs> true. That's how it happened. That's a good point, yeah. As you were researching all of this, what kind of a color palette was emerging and, and, and how did that speak to how you wanted to use color in the film, what you wanted color to mean? Well, the idea every time you, you watch a film on, on popes or, or castles or, or church, you imagine the dark light of the church and then the light coming from above from a window and with the footprints of God coming down and, and very, <laughs> because it's, it's always, uh, curious, maybe. Yeah. yeah always based on, on oil painting. Yeah. And from Renaissance and all that. But Cesar, he decided to go, why, why we were shooting in the Sistine Chapel in its old fresco to use the, uh, the frescoes as, as a reference. And in fresco, you don't have the light. Mm. It's the color, the shape that defines the shape of things, not the light. So that's what we did. The, the whole film is very flat. The light was very flat and, and very colorful wardrobe. And, and uh, so if you see the, the image, it really feels like a fresco, not like an yeah. oil painting. And we're very used to, to, to see this oil painting kind of lighting and say, oh, what a beautiful photography. Because it's a convention, mm -hmm. and he just reinvented uh, light for for churches. I mean, it's yeah. well, he just won the the silver frog silver in, in, yeah. in Camerimage because he really reinvented a, a way to to photograph church. Yeah. This is Cesar Charlone, your DP that we're talking about. Yes, yeah, Cesar Charlone, the DOP from Uruguay, and a longtime collaborator with. Fernando. Yeah, well, actually, it's his third frog. Now he's collecting yeah, frogs. He's got yeah. Lots of frogs. <laughs> As a gold and two silvers now. Yeah. I thought that was so great. I was just talking to Anthony about this. How how that just showed how refined the, the, the judges were, like to, to, to understand the, the, what was going on. I mean, obviously they would be, it's Cam Maj, but, but it was just, it was, it was so uh, wonderful that, that he got recognized for, for this work because it's, you know, two guys talking about religion and making it visual storytelling has to be 
it's something you have to really think about and figure out how are we going to elevate this and lift it up off the page. We were we were lucky enough to get escorted by Enrico Bruschetti through the through the Vatican, and um, he was quite surprised to arrive because when you arrive in in the Sistine Chapel, because when you look at all the books, you you tend to see a lot of older pictures, and actually when we arrived, it's like effervescent bright. You know these uh, these restored colors, and I, and I always lo- I love the idea that we decided to try and recreate that in the film in that sense, as you say, like as, as Fernando says, um, like a, or like a wall painting, like so. So it was like the first day that the people when it was first revealed, you saw it like mm-hmm. that in the film, and that was quite exciting. Yeah, and then, as you say, it is a, a very brave decision from the creative team, you know, Fernando and Cesar to to head in that direction because you know many people would say that was super flat and but it was a really brilliant tableau yeah so you know when those two popes stand there in the costumes they almost feel like they're in one of those paintings on the wall yeah that's yeah and it's not like like they're separated they're in they're almost against the 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 Vatican. yeah yeah. Yeah. it's brilliant because they're situated uh, within the the backdrop of this centuries of history of art history of church history They're, they're they're figures within this kind of landscape so it's it's fascinating. How did all of this material, the color palette and whatnot, how did that compare and contrast when you went to Argentina and what you were looking for there and what you were discovering there? We have a period in Argentina, which, which is in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So it's that's black and white. And then when we jump to the 70s, uh, yeah, we, we have a specific look yeah. that is not a, yeah. the same in, in Rome. Which, I mean, we try to reproduce a bit of the films from, from the 70s. The, yeah, I, I think when we looked at the, the, the footage from the 70s, it, had a real, it has a real tone and color palette that we represented in, in those, those the, it just the costumes and the, and the, and the wall, wall, wall coverings and stuff. They're in this, this uh, language of, of, of browns and, and creams and sort of ochres and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it sort of naturally has that flavor. And so it sort of feels slightly, and some of the footage looks slightly like sort of not Kodachrome soft, but there's a color to it that's, that gives it, gives it that period from the sort of sort of 70s, 80s. Yeah, and one thing that we explored a lot in Argentina was when you walk in this, these areas in Argentina, there's a lot of uh, murals. They, yeah. they paint. It's a tradition. I mean, it's something that they, they've been doing forever. And the film in the Sistine Chapel is frescoes. So we, we, we were playing with this thing that uh, the, the, the Argentinian graffitis are, are the frescoes of yeah. uh, the other world. And so we have a lot of walls and frescoes and graffitis because this became like a yeah. theme for us. Yeah. It's like an internal thing, but uh, no, for it us it was a, a big thing. Yeah, it was a revelation as we wandered around the, the, the as we followed the path of um, Bergoglio into the favelas, uh, around Buenos Aires, yeah, there were all these amazing, uh, as you say, wall paintings. They're like all their superheroes and their own stories up on the wall, which is, yeah. it's the same, it's the same in the Vatican. Those, those, those images at the time when they were first revealed were like great pieces of storytelling. So moving out of pre-production, you've got your game plan, you're moving into production, you've got to build this stuff, I guess. Let's start there. Have you have you come to a a way to explain the process by which you duplicated the last judgment? It's such an in, intense, deeply involved process. What's the best way to describe how you did this? Well, one of the challenges was that the the obviously we we looked at the idea of scenically painting it because we wanted to represent the fresh color that's existing now and not mm-hmm. the old Sistine Chapel, which is what you have in a lot of photographic work and prints. So 
We looked at the painting version and decided it would take too long to do that. It would take 17 weeks yeah. with 10, 10 painters. And then we're not sure even that they were all quite good enough, the painters, to reproduce that work. So we took the, we took the photographic plates that we had and realized that they were obviously too dark. So we then tried to reproduce some of those, you know, both in the photographic process to try and lift the color back up to this brightness, which we, we couldn't manage. So then in the end, we decided that the best way was to paint a smaller version of the Sistine Chapel and say, let's take the last judgment. We painted that at one third scale, so a third of its size, so that it was expedient and quick to do. And we employed some of the greatest painters from Italy mm -hmm. to come and do that, scenic artists and restor restorative people. Uh, so we painted that, then we photographed that. Um, and then what we did was we, we used the process from a company called Tattoo Wall, which basically in the in the easiest sensible terms, it's basically exactly like a, a, a an old children's tattoo that you put on your hand and you peel off the backing. You get the ink into your skin. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. They printed a photographic version of our artwork and then they put it onto the walls like wallpapering and they used a substance which then let the ink sink into the plaster wall. So that, that turned out to be a, a, a brilliant way to achieve that in the yeah. time. They took three weeks to three or four weeks to to wallpaper our set, which took seven weeks to build. So we managed to. Wow. And we had to paint because there was some clearance uh, issue. Yeah. The, the, the company who, who cleaned up the Sistine Chapel, the, the, they, they, had, they have the rights of the clean image. So it was very complicated That's to weird. navigate. We had the Vatican rights and the, the company who cleaned, uh, well, we couldn't clear. So we had to repaint it. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. So, Sony or Japanese company who sponsored the cleaning of the Sistine Chapel, they now own the rights. The Vatican sold the rights to them. So How the owner managed that. Well, I'd love to know. That's quite it's, a coup. Be that's, yeah, because that's the, the Italian image, way the image that we see nowadays. I mean, they they came up with that image. I mean, yeah. Wow. Usually was I mean it's so, very dark, and now yeah. we can see and, and so the, they, they have the yeah. rights. The only one, the only thing that was rights-free was this old footage that we had, old stills, which was super dark because they'd had hundreds of years of of, of the candle, yeah. candles burning in there. Um, yeah, so that that was one of the of the issues was we didn't have the material. Crazy. We had this company Union from London. They're great. I mean, the film, you watch the film and it feels a bit like very simple, like a documentary, but mm. there's so many CGI. Mm -hmm. All the, all the, the, the St. Peter's Square, most of the St. Peter's Square's image with the crowd and all that, this is all CG because we couldn't shoot inside the, the St. Peter's Square. Or when, when they're talking in the garden, you see the lake behind. Mm -hmm. There's so many CGs that we don't. That's, good a, news, that's yeah. a good quality CG. I mean, yeah. you watch and you never expect to be. Totally. Union is the name of the guy, Adam. Adam Gascoigne at Union yeah. Pictures. Plug. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was also a considerable amount of woodworking to duplicate inside there. You brought in a crew of local artisans for much of this. I would love to hear more about that crew, the, the artisans that you were bringing, bringing in locally, and obviously this means a lot to them. So tell me about them. Yeah, no. So there's no greater place to build um, a piece of classical artwork than in Rome because they, they have great artisans and, you know, they because of the amount of buildings and, and restorative work that goes on in, in Rome and Italy, um, they're past masters at it. So um, there is a, a wealth of, of brilliant craft people 
in and around the Chinichita Studios. The studios, is, to be honest with you, is 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 um, has seen better days and is it is recovering from uh, from its past glories. Mm. So now, like in a lot of things, the artisans are people that work on restoration of churches and chapels and things like that. So they're not within the studio. These are companies that live in and around the hills of Rome. So they built the the high altar in the Vatican in the Sistine Chapel and they built the the rood screen, which is very ornate that crosses halfway a third all the way through there. So mm-hmm. they 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 crafted that. They they sculpted that in clay and and um you know produced all the all of the sort of candelabras and all the things to you know sort of very high quality replication of the real the real things yeah now there was a an interesting mistake or, or something in the building of the Sistine Chapel it it yours was bigger than the original right what what happened there <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Mark should tell us. Our was like well, five centimeters I wasn't, bigger. Yeah, no, I wasn't wishing to get into the copyright issues, right? <laughs> but now we've got into it, we might as well get stuck in. So in our Sistine Chapel, I mean the curtains and the floor, we redesigned them. So they are slightly different. Mm-hmm. And that actually was because at that time we were in in um, not sure if we were going to get the rights to use the real thing. Ah. And that hadn't been agreed at the time, and and we had to move quickly. So when you look at the Sistine Chapel floor that we built, it is mildly different from the original, as are the curtains. If you see the curtains that swave around, there's nine panels instead of seven. Mm. And... Um, so the things there was there were certain things with strangely as you say certain things that the Rome, that the the Vatican owned and some things they didn't own and some wow. things we could get cleared and some things we couldn't get cleared. So one of the things we decided to do as a sort of a safety valve was to build our Sistine Chapel slightly bigger as well, so we could could clarify that obviously we weren't just making a replica or a copy. So so mm-hmm. in the end. We say we like to say that we built it 2.5 centimeters bigger all around, so that we could say we built the biggest Sistine Chapel. But sadly, <laughs> it was to do with a, a lawyers, a, as a, usual. a lawyers situation. <laughs> <laughs> in the end, it was all good. Thank you, the Vatican. But for a moment, you had the largest Sistine Chapel in the world. Yeah, we own that. That's fantastic. Uh, what was the overall thought behind positioning these characters within this environment? Because it's notable how they're situated in front of centuries of art history and religious history and particularly the sequences with Benedict when he's alone, like he's dwarfed by this environment. And it was just, just anything, any visual ideas that you had there. Yeah. When you read the script, all the conversation in, in, in inside the Sistine Chapel is just the two of them talking. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, so the, the, I had to think how, how to, to, to make this 15 pages uh, part of the film be more cinematic, more, there's like a choreography. They start uh, walking in and they, they talk standing up and they sit in a part of the chapel. Benedict says that he's going to resign. He the, the marble where he's seated is cold. So he stands up and so he goes to the other corner. This is just so they could keep moving and I could show the mm. amazing sense. Yeah. Then he's seated in, in his chair and we found this 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 watch. He has a watch that makes him uh, work, work out. Mm-hmm. So the, the watch bips yeah. and he has to walk, which I thought was a very good joke. I mean, the, the guy uh, <laughs> working out in the Sistine Chapel, <laughs> I have to walk <laughs> to make some exercise inside the Sistine yeah. Chapel. So he w- walks. But all that was excuse for us to use different parts of the set. 
in fact, I, uh, we were always talking about the, the the use of these tableaus, and I think we I think you see it in the film that we we cut to some of the storylines. We cut to the Last Judgment, and the Last Judgment is basically uh, Christ surrounded by people on the right who are ascending into heaven mm -hmm. and people on the left who are descending into hell. So in a way it was a sort of um, analogy of our the, the struggle that these two men were dealing with in this space, yeah. which was that, you know, they were dealing with, the, you know, the future of the church and, and their own inadequacies. We do cut to occasionally just a real close-up of some of the agonized faces that Michelangelo reproduced mm -hmm. as, a, as an idea so yeah. well, this is something that never nobody will ever get it's when they, they have friendly conversation they're, they're in the right side yeah. and then it goes to the other side and then that that's when we know about uh, Francis past all right let's talk about post-production I know Fernando this is one of your favorite topics <laughs> post-production uh, post-production the edit uh, how did you reshape or sort of rewrite the project in the editing room? Like, what did you discover that wasn't hitting you as hard maybe when you read the script or when you made the film, but in the edit you realized you discovered this or that? Tell me about that. At first, the film was much more on, on Pope Francis, the first draft. Mm -hmm. uh, we had his childhood and we had his relationship with his family and, and all. But this we, we cut before I start shooting. But we shot much more in Argentina. It was much longer, the, the, the flashback. Yeah. And then when we cut and we first screened, I mean, the, the, the relationship between the two actors was so strong that uh, whoever watched it wanted to go back to the, to the two actors and not... Yeah. It was like a, another film was, was starting. And, and I liked that. That's, that was my plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're watching a film and suddenly you're in a different film, mm -hmm. in a different period of time in Spanish. And, and, but because they're so good, everybody said, I understand the idea, but I mean, I want to go back. Mm -hmm. So we start uh, uh, trimming the Argentinian part and, and coming back and forth, in, intercutting between the, the, the Sistine Chapel and, and the past and then... So the film was really shaped in the cutting room. Yeah. And all the final sequence of the film, uh, it's, it was really invented while we were uh, cutting the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had so many possible uh, ways to finish the film, even mm -hmm. scenes that I shot and I, I didn't use. In the, in the first version, after uh, Francis is elected, was, was almost the end of the film. Mm -hmm. But we needed, I, I wanted to put more, I mean, a bit of the trajectory of, of Francis uh, today or, or the Francis we know. So we came up with this idea of, of uh, not only mentioning that he goes to Lampedusa, but actually go to Lampedusa. We found this, this, the lines, the speeches that he says in Lampedusa about uh, we're living in a soap bubble that mm -hmm. is, is uh, lovely but unsubstantial. He, mm -hmm. he has a beautiful speech. This is what he really said in Lampedusa. Mm -hmm. And then to cover this this uh, speech, he was in Lampedusa because of the refugees crisis, so decided to use a lot of images of refugees, and decided to shoot some refugees in in the Vatican walking. I mean, uh, Pope Francis touring some from refugees was a lot of improvisation. We just called some real refugees to to the set, and and we did that. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of material that I didn't know exactly how how, how we're going to use it. Yeah. And uh, and we found the the, the end uh, in the cutting room. The film had too many endings, you know. He's yeah. elected. That was the end of the film. And then he goes to Lampedusa with that beautiful speech. That was another ending. And then there was the football match, mm -hmm. which filled like 
a third ending, and I had shot even a, a fourth ending, which was uh, Pope Francis visiting Pope Benedict to take him some croissants, some some Argentinian croissants to him, something mm -hmm. that ha really happened. Mm -hmm. So we had four endings, and and so we had to reshape the whole. Yeah, is that a painful process for you? No, I mean it's no. it's lovely because it's so different. It changes so much. Usually say that I, I shoot a lot just so I can play uh, in the cutting room. Yeah. It's the best video game ever. Yeah. We rewrite the script because we cut lines and, and sometimes we add lines and then we, we ADR the lines that we we want to include. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ADR lines that were, were brought after we, we, we had the film cut. You know, mm. We would put my voice and, and then we replace. We did a lot of that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Fernando Stutz, the editor, he's a very young guy mm -hmm. and, and he really... I mean, he shaped the film. It's, it's really, he worked on the script, on the acting. Uh, he changed lines. He, he changed the, all the back and forth that you have in the film. This, this of course, doesn't come from the script. It's, it's, it's him playing around. Mm -hmm. The end of the film is, was all built in, in the cutting room. This guy is really brilliant. And the music, I mean, all most of the, the musics we have is his, his uh, inputs. Yeah. So I hope he... At some Absolutely. point, somebody realizes how brilliant is the editing of the film. All right, final segment here. I just want to ask a couple of quick random questions for you. What's the most impressive movie set you've ever seen on screen, your own work aside? Well, nowadays, I mean, with, with CGI, everything is impressive, right? But real sets, it's a difficult one. I'm trying that to see. That is a killer question. <laughs> much is that I'm, I'm, yeah. I like hearing that. I'm I'm drawn to the simplest things in life, actually. So um, I'm always trying to sponsor films that have no resources. All the awards and all the things, all the glory comes to those that have huge budgets. And quite honestly, as a designer, it's really easy if someone gives you a big fat budget. You just get loads of people and manage mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. What's really tricky is when you make something out of nothing mm -hmm. and make something really simple and... Um, those things are not – those types of designs or sets are not venerated that much. Yeah. But I, I'm thinking back to um, a set in a Mike Lee film. I can't, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was the one about the, the girl who was doing the abortions, Vera Drake. Vera Drake, yeah. Yeah. And they built this set. And what I loved about the set was it was – which is a classic thing in film. They always build grand because they think the camera has to be – able to move and be everywhere. But if you, it, they built tight and really small. So it gave you this real sense of claustrophobia, which mm. was so brilliant for the film. Yeah. So um, just off the, t I mean, there's probably a million sets yeah, I could sure. discuss, but just that, I'd say the house in Vera Drake was, was, uh, was a real, real masterpiece. Anything come to mind for you? So many, but it's, it's funny because I mean, all, all the films that came to me are, I'm not so sets built. It's, it's like images that, uh, like Weekend, Godard's Weekend, that mm. long shot of a traffic jam. and, and uh, mm -hmm. That's not a set, is it? It's just a, yeah, well, in, I would say, an installation. It's an installation, <laughs> yeah. In what way are you most like Francis? In what way are you most like Benedict? I like Francis because of his politics, because he, he understands that uh, we live in, in one world that is a common, like he says, a common uh, home. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we have to think whatever we do. I mean, it implies in the life of all the others. And, and he understands that uh, mm -hmm. we need to think globally. Not not uh, now. There's this wave of populism and nationalism, which is really mm -hmm. 
it's not going to get right. I mean, yeah. And, and he's the guy who's building bridges while everybody else is, is building walls. So I like him yeah. very much. Do you share any qualities with Benedict? With Benedict, no. But I, uh, I mean, when I started <laughs> uh, the project, he was the bad pope, and I and I had the good pope. Yeah. And uh, and in the end, there's more gray areas. I mean, I yeah. understand his point. I understand the idea of a traditional church trying to create an institution for you to relate with God, not with the society. Yeah. It's about uh, looking up, not yeah. looking around. So I understand his point. I don't agree much, but I understand. It makes sense. Yeah. I was. I was trying to think of something really intelligent, but actually what came to my mind was I share a love of Fanta with, <laughs> but Fanta zero because I'm diabetic. I also uh, would love to think that I had uh, a, a fashion sense that was in the same vein as Benedict, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What do I, do I share with Francis? I'd lo- I would love to be able to say that I share a lot of values with Francis. I, uh, we met him. Uh, Fernando and I and Tracy, the producer, we, we, we met him very briefly. And the really brilliant piece, he, he, he came towards us and I was really preparing what I was going to say to him. And he just held me and said, he said, Mark, pray for me. So he, he completely turned <laughs> the situation on its head. I was ready to ask him about stuff. Um, but no, there was a sort of humility. His main theme is, is mercy. Yeah. Which I, I, I mean... Forgiveness and mercy, and, and uh, I like that very much as well. Yeah, the the whole process of the film was a real eye opener. I am I'm from the Catholic tradition, and you know my mother was more excited than ever, <laughs> and and she tried to keep the entire large clan of my family involved somehow. But actually, uh, the process of making the film was really engaging for me. But to see the impossible task that it would be to manage the church. Yeah, and we, that day that we stood up with Francis, we looked out across St Peter's Square, and the immensity of of different cultures that were there. There was an African group that were going wild. There was a Polish team that were very reverent and praying. Um, there was a South American team that were like a football team. And you just look at it and you think, "Wow, this is this is as you, as you said earlier, Francis. It's 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 the it's the big it's managing the biggest company on the planet, and it's a yeah. task and a half." Where do you turn for that extra spark of inspiration when you hit a creative block? Well, I, I have a deep love of books yeah. and, and, and images. So um, I, I think uh, for me as a, as a designer, um, information is power. You know, So yeah. knowledge of the subject is power. Before you leave the subject, it's best to understand it. So I often try and head back to some a book or some research that sort of refocuses you back and you think, oh, yeah. now, I, now I see it. Yeah, for me, oddly enough, when I need to have ideas, I have to be very busy yeah. because the idea comes when, when I'm not thinking, you know, like uh, I'm really busy with something else and then boom. And, and, and I learned to trust my, my, my clicking process, you know, <laughs> because I used to, to have to prepare myself and to, and now I know that on the day it will come and it will, yeah. and it does come. I mean, the idea is just, I don't know why they come to me, but they come yeah. like the, the, in the film, the pizza, the pizza wasn't scripted. We decided right. to have a pizza like two days. Uh, it, it just come, you know, and yeah. I just trust. I learned that to trust my instinct more than my, my rational side. It yeah. took me years. I mean, it took me like decades to to know that I I don't need to control everything. Yeah. Just just trust your your instinct. On the day it will come, and and I'm 
so I, I feel myself like a jazz director. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to see now I, 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 everybody's doing their work. I just talk to people and, and the things like happens naturally. I don't, yeah. I try not to control the, the processes. Good advice. And then last question here, what's the movie that made you fall in love with movies? I have one, very clear, very, yeah. I remember the day and the time and what happened. It's a film called Iracema, Iracema. It's a Brazilian film by Jorge Bodansky. And, and uh, it's about a, a girl in the Amazon. Uh, it's a mix of documentary and, and fiction. She's a... a She's fiction, but she's uh, is real as at, at the same time. It's a story of this girl, fourteen year old girl, fifteen year old girl, and an actor, Brazilian known actor, and they're crossing the the Amazon in in when they open the first road, and so it's about uh, what we were doing with the Amazon, but it's so brilliant because it's a mixed. Uh, it, it's you're watching a documentary, but it's it's not a documentary. It was fascinated not only by the content, but but by this. I didn't know what was real and what was not. And I remember finishing the film. I was blown away and walking down the stairs where I watched it was in a film school, and, and I said, "That's what I want." I, I'm, I was trained as an architect, so I was there just by chance. I knew they were mm -hmm. going to screen this film. It was a film that uh, was prohib prohibited in, in Brazil because mm -hmm. of dictatorship. So I was just sneaking in to, to watch it. I remember coming down and saying, that's what I wanted to do in my life, films like this. Wow. Mark? No, I was, I was going to say that I remember we, we were a big family and we didn't go to the cinema that much, but my dad took us all to see Ben-Hur. I couldn't believe it wasn't the real deal. It was just, I thought it was the real thing. That memory of being with all my family watching Ben-Hur at the cinema. But as I go on in life, I prefer... To the films that I love and that inspire me are things like Babette's Feast because of my mm. love of food <laughs> and wine and um, company and families and celebrations. Awesome. Well, uh, what, what you guys achieved here, uh, getting back to the production design on this project is phenomenal. So uh, hats off to you. It's a wonderful film. I was just telling Anthony, I keep saying the word sublime about this film, watching these two guys have this intense debate uh it's just a sublime piece of work so congratulations on it and thank you for talking to me about it today thank you very much thank you clearly this was an achievement numerous individuals building something like this from the ground up and with such expert precision and detail these are often the unsung players of a film production those in the art department are the first ones in the door and the last to leave they are frequently responsible for gargantuan eye-popping feats and The Two Popes is no exception, clearly. Indeed, it's a testament to movie magic. When you see this film, if you haven't already, tell me it didn't feel like you just took a trip to Vatican City. The Two Popes is in select theaters now and will be available to stream on Netflix December 20th. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 